0: Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. My name is Matthew Darlitz. I'm the editor in chief of the Science of Psychotherapy. And as always, here with managing editor and good friend, Richard Hill. Hi, Richard. Look, it's fantastic. It's, it's, like a, it's
0: like a massive lead up to my to my presence. <laughs> and, and I should, you know, there should be loud bells and, and <laughs> no. But it's 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 great to be back again. We're 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 doing uh, things. i uh, talking to some fascinating people. We're getting all mm-hmm. around the world. But what I'm exciting about uh, excited about today is is we're getting around to our area of the world right. and this fabulously internationally relevant uh, uh, person from the good land of Australia.
1: That's right. We're heading down to Melbourne to talk to Dr. Moshe Pearl, who is an expert in neurofeedback around the world. And this is from a listener who suggested that we get him on the show. And he was very gracious to talk to us. And I'm so glad that we caught up with him. Absolutely. So, everybody
0: listening, you know, please send us your recommendations. We, we, uh, we certainly, you know, try and and uh, we we make the effort to ask anyway to see who we can get. And this is a great find. I uh, I was amazed. And in in the last week. I had about three things come into my uh, just you know just serendipitously coming into my email that included <laughs> Dr. Pearl. I got and one from my good friend Agostino in in Portugal. Hi Agostino, I hope you're good. Uh, so uh, so fabulous stuff. Now uh, you got a bit of background there for us.
1: man. Okay, yeah. So uh, Dr. Pearl, he's a world class expert in neurofeedback and qeeg and EEG analysis areas in which he has almost two decades of experience teaching and mentoring practitioners in Australia and internationally, now, on that point of training, we'll put links in the show notes so that if there are any practitioners interested in connecting and doing some training, they can go straight there.
0: So that's fantastic. And in a second, we'll go off to, to talk to Dr. Pearl. But of course, everybody out there, remember, if you want to have us keep doing this stuff, uh, take advantage of our fabulous and, and and extensive archive of material. You'll see, if you go to the website, uh, you'll see that we've been doing a lot of uh, development and Improvement and making it easier to access our academy we, we'd love to have you join us as a subscribing member
1: but uh, meanwhile let's just enjoy this podcast and let us head off to Melbourne Dr Pearl thank you for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast it's so great to see you
2: Thank you, thank you.
1: And hello from me. It's,
0: it's just a great privilege to have you here. Your reputation is uh, precedes you, but I'm sure we'll hear all about that as we as we go through the program. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's always threatening, isn't it? You yeah. <laughs> say so.
1: Dr. Pearl, I'm wondering if you would just introduce yourself to our listeners and just give us a little bit of a background uh, leading up to you know, getting into the whole neurofeedback field.
2: Sure. I started uh, my studies in psychology in 1978. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I had studied physics before that and didn't really see myself as a physicist. Started studying psychology and ended up becoming a clinical psychologist. Worked in America. uh, That's where I studied for about 10 years uh, in Texas. And did a lot of work in schools and worked with a lot of kids that had uh, attention and focus issues. At that time, we would assess them and send them off to pediatricians to get medication. And I've got no issue really with medication. Um, When it works, it's great. And uh, the medicines for ADHD work pretty well for a lot of kids. And I would track these children and I would see over time they were still doing fine on the medicine. There were some uh, side effects that some of the kids suffered from and couldn't continue to use the medicine. And there were some kids that had more complex presentations that the medicine didn't really work very well. And when I came back to Australia in the early 90s, I continued to work with uh, kids with attention and focus issues. And one of my buddies, a psychiatrist, says to me, well, you know you can work with these kids without medication and uh, at that point I said, oh, yeah, pull the other leg. I didn't really didn't really believe it. And he said, no, 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 there's this guy in, in Sydney who's doing this biofeedback thing with, with these kids. So I went up to Crow's Nest and had a look at the guy that was doing it, and uh, here are these kids just watching these TV screens and training, and I looked at the research that was available then, and it was pretty impressive. And I said, you know what? I've been seeing these sorts of kids for ages. I know pretty much what ADHD looks like, and they're getting results. So I bought equipment, started training, and really since 1998, I've been doing neurofeedback. And right from the start, you'd see these kids, they would just settle, they would just start focusing, they would start doing their work at school, they would stop having severe behavior problems. That was stuff that I hadn't actually seen a lot when kids were on the medications. These kids were doing well 24 seven, whereas the kids on medications were only doing well while the medication was in their system. So early mornings and late evenings were always problematic for kids with attention problems. Whereas once we trained these kids, they were fine. Hmm. And the other piece that was interesting to me was that the self-attribution was different. When you're on medicine, you always think that it's an external thing that's actually helping you do better. But mm. when you do neurofeedback, after a while, you go, no, I'm doing better. There was a whole different attitude about it. And that to me is also a valuable piece. So from there, we just started getting everything that is somehow connected to an attention issue. So we started getting autistic spectrum kids. We started getting people with high anxiety. We started getting people with a traumatic brain injury. We started getting all sorts of different things, and the neurofeedback was helpful. Mm.
0: I think so, it's so interesting with the because when I was I've been working at the moment with I've got a, a number of people who were utilising medications, and the, the, the frustration, the way they put it, and I think it's probably quite accurate in the in the presentation, is that it's uh, it's not need dependent. So in other words, the the medication just works all the time, but they don't need it necessarily all the time. So mm-hmm. sometimes they feel very balanced, but then suddenly they can uh, go way up and, and almost have a manic sort of uh, phase as well as the one you're talking about, where there's a sort of a, an area where there's no medication and also no self, self-generation self of what to do. So, well, it's the old Albert Bandura thing of of self-efficacy and and we keep thinking mm-hmm. so that that behaviour is is just something we do on the outside, but it's it goes it goes all the way down into the neuronal uh, neuronal functions. So mm. that's that really has uh, you know I'm so fascinated to hear you hear you say that they the kids started to feel as though it was their own brainwaves. You know, it was they were doing the work,
2: mm. and that they were getting better, and they didn't have to deal with this idea that I'm this way sometimes and then I'm this way sometimes. Yeah. So, which is me. Yeah. You know? yeah. And yeah. and uh, they're just different. And almost all kids want to please their parents. It's an unusual child that really doesn't want to. And when they find that they just can't, they just do it anyway, it's really problematic. If we think about how we need a lot of, reinforcement that we're doing well in our work. In other words, if we even get one negative comment from somebody about what we're doing, it just sticks with us and sticks with us and it's problematic. And even if we do resolve it, it really is painful. Well, imagine these kids with attention problems. They're getting more of those than they are getting, you are doing well. So the motivation to keep trying disintegrates after a while. And that also really affects them for a long time afterwards. So being able to get a child that just now is at this level and just stays at this level in terms of their responsiveness and their behavior, all of a sudden there's a change and they're not getting all the negatives anymore. Um, And it still takes a long time for the penny to drop. I work with kids that were already doing really well, weren't getting into trouble, and they still couldn't attribute it to themselves. And then all of a sudden the teacher said to them, do you know that you're actually really good at math? And it was like, you know, that was a year later. And then all of a sudden they go, oh yeah, I really am. You know, and it's like, ah, good. You know, now it's like you can fill the shoes that are already being made for you. You can actually do it. And that's really what we want uh, for kids, is, is that they can actually expand into their potential, you know. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and so, for me, you know, the the thing that I always tell parents about kids with an attention issue is that my job's to help them survive school. And uh, it's a bit of an indictment on school when you know it's something one has to survive, yeah. but. Really, they get so many negatives, yeah. and it's so difficult. And yeah. they do hang in, which is quite astonishing. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah, the neurofeedback can change can change that whole direction for them. You know, that's what that's the sort of thing that I've seen with neurofeedback. Brilliant. And it, yeah, the neurofeedback really has a big a big impact on uh, attention and focus issues. It's one of its really big strengths. The other big strength it has is on trauma, people who've suffered trauma. And if you've spoken to Ruth Lanius, you know, that's her area. What we're seeing is that we can actually help people contain and calm all of the agitation and fear and anxiety and panic that surrounds their life after they've suffered trauma. And when you can actually do that with neurofeedback, it's like they can then start actually dealing with the traumatic material. So it's not like you just do neurofeedback and then you've recovered from your trauma. It's like it allows you to be in a place where you can actually talk about the stuff in a way that's useful to you and work through the traumatic events that have happened. And we see dramatically improved outcomes when we add neurofeedback to all of the great um trauma therapies that are out there today
1: yeah yeah so uh, i'm wondering dr pearl if you could step us through a typical session so that we can picture in our minds exactly what is happening here um, with the the particular techniques that you're using would that be possible
2: sure Uh, let me talk let's say about a, a child that comes in with an attention issue the child is usually brought in by their parents. I'll take the child into the room. We've already been training for a while. So I will set up the training the way we had been doing it. Uh, The training involves putting a couple of sensors on a person's scalp and on the ears, and then that goes to an amplifier, which goes into a computer. The computer is attached to a monitor. They're actually watching some sort of game or DVD or something on the monitor. Meanwhile, the therapist is adjusting the level of difficulty of the training so that we are changing their brainwave patterns. Certain brainwave patterns are associated with difficulties with focus and attention. So what we're doing is we're actually getting the brain to produce less of them. So there's a change on their screen if they're not producing as much of the faster wave as we want or too much of the slower wave. Let's say that that's how we've set it up. And then the screen will start going dark and all they want to do is watch the movie. So their brain is already getting the information about changing something. And with any biofeedback, when you present the result and the information about what is happening, the brain can just change what's going on, whether it's in the brain or in the body. That's
1: biofeedback. So they actually start changing their brainwave patterning. And if we can just just for listeners so that they understand that this is only monitoring brain waves, that there is no actually manipulation of brain waves apart from the the feedback that comes through the eyes and the ears.
2: yeah, that's right. There are stimulation techniques that are used, many of them are very uh, useful and very powerful, but uh, neurofeedback doesn't utilise any of that. Mm. The neurofeedback is simply looking at what the brain is doing. And showing the person a result
0: of that, giving them a, a conscious awareness. It's it's interesting. We were talking about this in a, in another situation. The 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 sort of the three states of uh, levels of consciousness, and this one where we've got this um, uh, this verbalising uh, reflective aspect uh, of consciousness. That's that's a very useful one and one that we can work with. But there's a lot that goes on where there's just a knowing without knowing what is what, what they call noetic consciousness, and this. This ability uh, to use the world as a reflection of it is is just so uh, it's such a simple concept, but so natural. And and I can just I'm sitting there watching a screen, and I'm watching a movie, or I'm watching and and there comes to a really good bit, and then I start getting distracted by the squirrels in my own head, and if I want to watch the movie, so you you're this is, so I'm I'm really just training myself. On which brainwaves more successfully allow me to to get what I want? I suppose is mm. that it's it's yeah. almost a bit selfish in some respect, or self <laughs> self rewarding. Self rewarding, perhaps, is a yeah. nicer way. Yeah,
2: you know the principle of biofeedback is really fundamental to all learning, mm-hmm. and what we're just doing is we're just using a machine to extend the senses into an area where we're not usually aware.
1: Yeah. Um, mm-hmm.
2: For instance, you know, if you think about how, how does a baby learn how to walk? How do they learn how to stand up? Well, they learn by biofeedback. They sort of flex a muscle or do a bit of something, and all of a sudden they're up and then they're down again. <laughs> and, you know, they repeat that hundreds of times. And then eventually the connection forms, you know, and what you, you, know, what you celebrate with any child is their persistence. I mean, how a little child persists doing the same thing again and again and again until they get it. And then, of course, the exaltation, the joy that they generate when they can stand up and walk, all of that is a biofeedback mechanism because they're getting feedback as to where they are oriented and the feedback is going to the muscles that then adjust. And when that is quick enough, they stand up. So all biofeedback is really a natural way of learning and to me, that's one of the reasons why it is so successful. Because we're utilizing a mechanism that's fundamental. Yes, and it's just increasing the sensitivity. Uh, yeah, you, yeah you, we're, we're showing notice. something that you normally wouldn't, you know, it's one of your body functions that you normally wouldn't recognize. Right. So we're just using a machine to show it to you. That, to me, really makes me very pleased about the process. Because also, if it's not, you know, if you're giving somebody feedback and it's not really what they like, the brain just goes, no, not interested, Mm. don't want to do this, and then there will be no effect. It's, It's a methodology with so few side effects that when we did a review of the literature of all the studies we could find on neurofeedback, we did that a couple of years ago, and we ended up with something like 320 studies. I don't think any of them reported negative effects, and these are all published studies in peer-reviewed journals. Hmm. It's pretty. Powerful. And you go, that's pretty astonishing that we didn't find negative effects. And in my own practice, I've only had negative effects once or twice. Hmm. And of course, then I've moved to make sure they don't happen again. Hmm. Yeah. But you know, you're talking about a very, very safe intervention, and that's yeah. because it's what the it's this is how we
1: learn yeah that's such a such a great point because some people that are not used to maybe using working with technology might think oh this is some sort of artificial um, you know weird manipulation of the brain but not at all a, as you say it's this is just working with the naturalness of learning to recalibrate uh, a better yeah. way of, of being
0: yeah. now you mentioned uh, the uh, dr. Puller, there's some equipment there's some uh, things that go on the head and the, the ears. Could you expand a little bit on on what sort of um, uh, you know if I were if I were practicing this, what sort of setup am, am I looking at uh, requiring, uh, as sure. well as of course training in how to use it, but but just some sure. of the mechanical aspects. Sure. Well, you're looking at um,
2: you're looking at uh, an amplifier that will amplify uh, tiny signals, very very similar to a microphone amplifier. Uh, You've got to amplify microvolt signals. So you need an amplifier that's going to do that. And then you need to plug it into a software program that can analyze that and produce the sorts of feedback screens that the clinician needs in order to regulate what's going on. And then you need to have uh, screens or games for the client to look at. So you've got to have an amplifier, you've got to have leads or sensors, and then you've got to have software to Process at all, so when you you know when you're looking at that, the prices vary depending on the quality. I think the quality of the machinery itself. You can get into the market at something like thirteen or fourteen hundred dollars, and those are clinical machines. Mm. And the prices will will range up to, I would say, ten or twelve thousand, depending on what additional things you want in it, and how user friendly. The machinery is the less expensive machinery is not very user friendly. You've got to be a semi, I think, a semi uh, computer whiz to be able to operate the stuff. Whereas the higher price stuff is a lot easier for people to operate.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I'm sort of thinking that, you know, I spent, uh, I might have spent a thousand dollars on comfortable, comfortable lounging for, you know, my sit-in clients. Of course, this is. It's interesting that you know we we've just got to realize that uh, I think that we we actually spend quite a quite a reasonable sum of money on our individual setup, and you know, for it seems to me that half of that sort of cost is what I would have spent anyway. I'm actually uh, quite surprised. Fabulous! So it's really accessible for anybody uh, who's good, but but of course training is is, is important sure. as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The
2: the way that I've approached doing neurofeedback is. I train people in really the most simple way to intervene. It's the simplest way of understanding what we're doing. There are more and more complex methodologies out there, but the research doesn't suggest that they are any better at what they do. So for me, I say, well, start simple. If the simple doesn't work, look for something else. But up until now, the research shows us that the simple stuff works. If I just go back to those studies, you know, I said we found uh, over th- well 320-odd studies, 80 of them were actually randomized controlled trials, and 60 of them are using the methodology that I use. And when you think that in order for any methodology to be uh, efficacious or considered efficacious, what you need is two randomized controlled studies done by two independent clinics. That's it. Well, we got 60.
0: Yeah, it's big. So
2: when when people say that, you know, there's no evidence to support the use of neurofeedback, I'm going, well, okay, (laughs) you know, we got 30 times what you need, but if that's still not enough for you, you know, whatever. Yeah, the literature is there, and there is more and more literature coming out. In, In fact, what we found was that in the last 10 years, there's much more research that's come out. For neurofeedback than in the previous ten years. You know, right. so yeah.
1: the field is still doing a lot of research. And in terms of therapists, you know cl- clinicians on the ground with clients, are you finding that there's you know a, a good decent uptake of using neurofeedback in therapy, or is it still there's just not enough?
2: I don't think there's enough in Australia. Mm-hmm. There seem to be a few more practitioners in Sydney than in Melbourne. I think Sydney tends to be less conservative in its outlooks than Melbourne is generally. Having lived in Melbourne most of my life, uh, that seems to be the way things happen. But even in Sydney, there still aren't a lot of practitioners. Mm. Mm. When you look at what neurofeedback can help with, and you look at the percentage of these issues in the population, then of course we could use more neurofeedback. I think what's limiting in many ways is the cost of the intervention itself i mean it's not a cheap intervention it's a one-on-one pretty much with a therapist or in a clinic it's one-on-one with a technician but the technician you know is working for the for the main main therapist and that's costly too so that you know it's it's an expensive intervention and i think that gives it a certain limitation but then so are a lot of other interventions i mean If you want to do physiotherapy, it's got to be one-on-one, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's, those are all expensive interventions. That, I think, is, is a limiting factor.
1: Right. Now, in, in terms, I see that on your website you offer an, an array of different trainings and, and services for professionals. Now, if I was wanting to, you know, set up myself as a neurofeedback practitioner and I was turning to you for, for training, what, what would you offer?
2: Well, I would say the first thing that one does is a four-day training to learn how to operate equipment Mm -hmm. and also to begin to understand why it is that we're looking at brainwave patterns or EEG, how that relates to symptoms that we see, and how we begin to create the training protocols that we end up with. Right. So that would be a four-day training. And then after that, I would say to people, get probably 20 hours of mentoring over the next couple of years. Get somebody who's using the equipment that you end up using. Get somebody who knows a lot about the area that you work in so that they can show you how to get good at this particular group with mm-hmm. neurofeedback and integrating the therapies that you already use into neurofeedback. That would, be the, that would be my comment to them. And as your interest grows, you'll find that there are other courses that will expand your understanding of neurofeedback and protocol design. It will it'll expand your understanding of EEG generally, but there are people that really don't care too much about that. They say, no, I just want to use this with my clients. I'm going to do a bit of neurofeedback, and then I'm going to do a bit of psychotherapy, and that's all I want to do. And there are other people that are number crunchers, and they say, no, I really want to understand more about EEG and how the EEG affects things, and I want to learn more about that. So we have courses for those
1: as well. Right. Okay. Brilliant. Now, look. I understand that software is always improving, and we're getting better. You know, graphics for the, the, the interactive games and those that sort of thing. But is the science of what sort of brainwaves we we're, were training? Is that fairly established? The, the the graphics might look better, but we're still doing we're still aiming for the same results in terms of brainwaves. My opinion is yes. Mm-hmm. In, You know, of course, somebody's going to come out with some
2: new 3D thing that's going to do Hmm. wonders next year, and then I'm going to go, oh, well, I have to eat my words. But it looks like brainwave patterning is the piece that we're looking for. We try to describe this with a bunch of numbers when this thing has created every human creation we've seen on the earth, and we think that by, you know, 6 or 8 or 10 or 12 numbers, we're going to we're going to get this thing. And that's an absurdity. And when you start thinking about how the brain works, I don't know if you've ever been at Tokyo train station, but if you can imagine the biggest train station that is in your city, maybe in Sydney, there's, you know, 20 or 24 platforms, let's say, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty busy train station. Imagine that on seven levels. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. That's the Tokyo yeah. Railway Station.
1: Yeah.
2: And maybe 10 million people go through that station in a day. It's yeah. unbelievable. And it's like this is what the networks in the brain are like, that you've got a piece of information that's a person that's got to get to a station at one of these levels at just the right moment to catch the train. You can't be too early because then you're wasting your energy. You can't be too late because you miss the train. That's what's going on in the brain is that information is moving through these huge hubs and that information has to be precisely coordinated. And you're going, okay, but how does it know that this particular network is the one that it's on? Because, you know, it gets to this area, which is a huge hub in the brain. It's and you just frontal. go, yeah. we've got so much going through it every second. How does the brain sort it all out? And this is where we, we're sort of finding ourselves in terms of trying to understand in real time, how does the brain create and sustain the networks it needs? And we're talking about thousands
0: and this is all a part of Chalmers, you know, big question of the, that we just don't know how this activity creates the consciousness we've got. But, but it's and the thing that I, I found uh, fascinating, and I, I made a big note of it in the book, that that we actually. Uh, lose track of the 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 fact that consciously we we're sort of we work in half seconds maybe half one second but actually down at that level of the brain and all those trains coming in and out they're operating in milliseconds so you know this it's it's a massive. It's a massive process and uh, uh, and I think it's so beautifully put up you know, uh, as you, you described wow we think we can get seven or eight uh, understandings and woohoo, we know the whole we know the whole shebang there's something magical going on up there that's for sure uh, and yeah. and we need to trust it to look after itself is I think <laughs> is what you're getting at
1: yeah yeah, Dr. Pearl, Can I just um, just rewind just a little bit in talking about intervention and technique, and you sort of—it's it's a fairly intense sort of one-on-one process that's happening now. Typically, and I've. As you say, typically, there probably isn't, isn't any typical example. But when you're working, say, with a child with ADHD, is this a like a once a week, one hour, once a week kind of intervention for a number of months? Mm-hmm. Or is it mm-hmm. does the child do something every day? What does it look like in terms of the intensity of the therapy?
2: Once you've figured out how to train somebody, and that takes a few sessions to figure out, mm-hmm. They can do that training every day if they want to. The research literature looks really at once or twice a week as the way they have done the research. And those results are all positive. So when you say, okay, how many times a week should a person train? I would say once you know what you're doing, many of them could train every day. But, of course, with people so busy, that's just not possible. So once a week, twice a week is usually where things end up. I've worked with folks and gotten terrific results. Working on average once every two weeks to get the results.
0: Yeah, do, do kids or uh, people able to use utilize any sort of uh, aspects of this between sessions? Sort of, is there some way they can practice, or is it really um, you need to be in there with the technician and with the, the framework? I think that between
2: sessions, we don't necessarily give it any sort of homework. Right. What you start seeing in a typical child who just doesn't focus very well is that after five or six sessions, all of a sudden they get up in the morning and they get dressed, and the parents are going, Wow, <laughs> yeah, that's unusual. Or all of a sudden they're ready for bed and they've brushed their teeth and they've done what they've needed to do. Whereas that's usually, Come on, you've got to do this. Come on, you've got to do this. Come on, you've got to do this. It's, it just starts shifting. Mm -hmm. that that's the sort of thing we start seeing after a while then you can look at behavior stuff in the beginning some children are so difficult that the parents are just trying to survive yeah and i don't i don't blame the parents i mean if i had kids like that i'd be pulling my hair out too but what you find with the neurofeedback is that the kids just start calming down a bit if they have behavior issues those behavior issues are less intense and that allows Mm. you Mm. to start working with the parents to say okay well maybe now we can draw a line here and they'll actually respect that line and there won't be world war three um (laughs) because i've got no intention of, of making parents just sort of get more distressed about what's going on so we wait until you see that the child actually starts complying just a little bit better, and then you say, "Okay, now we can start doing the behavior interventions, um, and those behavior interventions then start working.
0: I can just imagine the kids themselves mm. uh, would would be enjoying being
1: able to sort of, Uh, you know, try and try and work it. But yeah, no, that's, sorry, Matt. I've just continually blown away when we have these discussions about neurofeedback that what appears to be very firmly established neural patterns, just you're saying five to six hours of training over a a number of weeks um, creates a significant and permanent shift Mm. in those neural patterns, that no, no amount of appealing to the prefrontal cortex through, you know, getting into trouble and being told what to do can shift. And, I, yeah, I just think this is uh, the efficacy of this is amazing.
2: Let me uh, – I need to add here that I wouldn't say that five or six sessions are going to produce permanent change. Mm. We find that permanent right. change takes quite a bit longer. But what you start seeing is all of a sudden on the way home from training – the child who's usually completely uncommunicative starts talking to the parent and actually have a conversation. Right, yeah. Which is, that's new. But then when they get home, they're just back to their normal selves. In other words, you get flash in the pan. But once you start training somebody by about 10, 12 sessions in for these more difficult kids, you are seeing consistent shifts. Mm. And then if you want to make that sort of stuff permanent, you probably have to go 40 or 50 sessions. That's my experience with it. Yeah, so So adaptation I did not want people to get the idea that, no, no, no. sessions is all you need because I wish yeah. it were that way, yeah. but
0: it, it's just not. But you could begin to see change at that time. And uh, it, it was really interesting. I'm just thinking there in relation to other brain functions that we stimulate uh, uh, in order to return to some kind of set of functionality. And I was just thinking about stroke uh, patients. Uh, there's, a, there's a thing where, where there's a period of time where you're doing all this work and nothing much is happening. Then there starts to be some process, but it's uh, it's a long time. And I had a, a friend who who went through this, and uh, uh, he was saying that the big uh, barrier time seemed to be around this this five to uh, seven or eight weeks. And if you could just okay. get yourself up to there and get through it without uh, giving up or, or getting frustrated, that he said, uh, then I, then I was away. But it did take him another six months. That's very similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, yeah I mean, people need to, to see that there is a way through it. Yeah, and that you know, once they start seeing that, that's that's great. When you work with uh, kids on the autistic spectrum, you find that not all of them, but many of them, uh, just throw a lot of tantrums. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you go, what are we supposed to do with this? So first order of business is to help them not throw in so many tantrums. And neurofeedback's pretty good at that.
1: Yeah. Now, Dr. Pell, you've talked about ADHD and ASD. Um, uh, what other s- sorts of um, conditions are you working with?
2: We work with trauma. Mm-hmm. And with trauma, you integrate your psychotherapy with neurofeedback. And either the trauma therapists themselves will learn to do neurofeedback as part of the session. So they might do 15 minutes of neurofeedback and then do the rest of the session is a psychotherapy, or they have somebody else doing the neurofeedback, and they're devoted to the therapy aspects of it. The function of the neurofeedback always is to help people become less hypervigilant, mm-hmm. to be able to calm, to have less fear and panic. And what you see with neurofeedback is that the traumatized people they begin to sleep better, and that's one of the big signs. Yeah, the. Uh, Whether they're flashbacks or whether they're nightmares, they are occurring with less frequency and intensity. The other piece that's really valuable with traumatized clients is that it allows them enough calm to actually talk about the traumatic events in a psychotherapy in a way that works. In other words, it helps them actually deal with it. Now, the actual trauma therapies themselves are tending to become more and more body-based sensory based and they are very successful and the neurofeedback allows access to that information right and so the client yeah. can actually start talking so that's the big the big piece for me
1: yeah yeah very complementary uh, absolutely yeah so as we uh, sort of
0: come to wrapping up now dr pearl is there something that we've missed or there's something that you'd like to to highlight that we haven't yet uh, spoken about
2: I'd like to just make a comment about how the brain processes. And when we talk about taking in information and doing biofeedback, the first methodologies that were talked about that were behaviorist. They talked about stimulus and response. And when you conceive of biofeedback in that way, it's like the body does a certain response and then gets a result. You use that result to inform what you're going to do next. And so it fits perfectly in a strict behavioral paradigm. In fact, it was the strict behaviorists, not even the cognitive behaviorists, that started working with biofeedback. However, knowing what our brain is capable of doing, our brain is fantastic at pattern recognition. Mm. We see a face, and then months later, we see the same face again. We may not know the name of the person, but we know we've seen that face before. Now, human beings are, I mean, we are programmed to recognize faces, but look how well we can do it. Mm. And so when you present a lot of information to a brain, the brain can take all of that information and it sorts it through very, very quickly and finds patterns. And so for me, one of the bases of neurofeedback is pattern recognition. Mm. Even though you are sitting there sort of passively looking at a screen or doing something, it's like the brain can actually pull out the critical information, and organize it and respond to it. And Mm. that to me is one of these wonderful pieces that I look at what people are doing with neurofeedback and I go, yeah, look at that. Mm. They're just watching a movie with these things attached to their scalp and their behavior is changing, which to me is always just, it's magic anyway. I still think it
0: is. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the wonderful joy of a complex system that that works and self-organizes itself it, uh, i'm pretty sure we would never have made it to this far as a species or as a, as life on the planet if if we'd had to consciously and and cognitively determine every uh, everything we did so this this is wonderful uh, and that's such a such a, a piece of information, a piece of knowledge, that understanding that uh, encourages the the, the user to, to know what they're doing uh, and trust that the thing that they're working with knows what it's doing
1: as well. I love it. Fantastic. Dr. Pearl, it's been wonderful connecting with you and uh, getting a little bit of insight into what you do with neurofeedback. Um, we will point people to your website and uh, and especially to your training, as most of our listeners are therapists. I'm just very excited about this field. So it was such a pleasure to talk to you today.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for interviewing me.
0: Oh, it was wonderful. I, did, I, I don't know how I get to the end of every podcast and go, wow, that was just amazing. <laughs> uh, but yeah. it's so interesting. And yeah. I just, uh, it is really nice to have that lovely laconic Australian style of of speaking. But this whole concept that we're finding all over the place in things we're doing, how to best use what is natural within the client in order to amplify it. And sometimes our problem is we just don't we're just not sensitive enough to pick it up. Yeah. And here is something that it's an extended sensitivity. So actually yeah. getting below that auto-noetic consciousness into the noetic consciousness, that knowing, and, uh, and and some of those anoetic automatic behaviors of neural behavior, absolutely fantastic. Uh, it is. It's just ADHD, ASD, trauma, and, and really helping the brain do its job better. Fabulous. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it is. It's a fascinating area, and uh, I just love the fact, like you said, it's it's along lines of naturalness—the the the brain's natural leaning to to want to heal itself. There's no trying really hard to get the right brain waves to happen. It just it's just an, a natural process. Oh, uh, look, every time I do something uh, like this, talking about neurofeedback, uh, I I wish I had got into it, you know, way back when. Well, time to time to start, Matt. There time to start. That's right. <laughs> Well, thank you, everybody, once again, for, for joining us here. Now, just a, a quick reminder, if you do want to stay up to date with everything that we're publishing and things that we've got out, please sign up to our email address. That's the best way that uh, you can stay in sync with everything that we're doing. And yeah, if you appreciate what we do, please become a subscriber. We'd love to have you as part of the tribe. And, and also uh,
0: download our app. Onto yes. your under your iPhone or your Android, and that will give you ready access. And we'll be able to let you. Know, we'll let you know through the app when when an email comes out or when a magazine comes out mm, or mm. any of those important things. So grab that app, put it on your phone, <laughs> and
1: poke it every now and again. I'm <laughs> I'm talking technical stuff now. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. Well, thank you everybody for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast, and we will catch you next time. Bye for now.
0: Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.